Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, who, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the supremacy and the preeminence of your word in our lives. We yield our hearts to it now. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning. We pray that he would help us to make application of this passage. There's so many different ways you could apply this to us. And Lord, we yield our hearts, Lord. We don't want to just go through religious exercise. We're interested in engaging you and having you fashion our lives and further conforming us to the image of Christ. So we pray that you'd accomplish all of that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we've been looking at, these Jewish believers were being tempted to go back to Judaism and leave their relationship with Christ and go back to the law of Moses in a, way, in, in, in a futile effort to become justified before God. And all of this because of persecution. Likely they were being influenced by those that were teaching false doctrine and encouraging them to potentially venerate and worship angels and all those things that were very popular in that time. And so they were contemplating going back. And so as we've seen, this theme of Jesus is better has been, been pervasive through the book so far, and it's going to continue all the way through to the end of the book. And we've seen that Jesus is a better revelation. He's better than the prophets. He's better than angels. He's, he's better than... Uh, Anything that these Jewish believers were tempted to go back to. And that's what the writer is driving home. But it's more important than that. It's, it's, it's a matter of 
engaging the Lord in a relationship in a way that honors him with their faith. And so with them being tempted to go back, uh, they were thinking that they were going to escape something, namely persecution. But as we saw, uh, you know, the last chapter that the writer wants them to understand, if you go back to Judaism and you forfeit what you have, you're not escaping anything. You actually escape something if you remain where you're at. If you remain in your relationship that you have with Christ, you're escaping God's discipline and worse. And so he's trying to use great clarity. He's trying to use uh, great bluntness, really, just to be able to, like holding a child's face with your hands and speaking right into their face and just saying, I'm telling you something, you can't miss this. And that's what he's doing by the Spirit. He's called this salvation so great a salvation. And he said, how can we escape if we neglect that? And that's what they were doing. They were drifting. These believers were drifting, and these believers were neglecting their salvation. They weren't being good stewards of uh, what they had been entrusted with. And so last week we saw him talk about how Jesus is better because he became human. In the first chapter, we saw that Jesus is better because he's God, He's divine. He's better than the prophets and angels. But last week, we needed to see that Jesus is better because he became human. Why did he become human? He became human to suffer and die, as we saw. And all that God wanted to do for us needed and necessitated Jesus to come and suffer and die. But he couldn't come and suffer and die unless he became human. And so that was the point that we saw. And so because of that, we don't have to deal with the fear of death as believers. He's taken the sting out of death. Oh, yes, it's an enemy, but it's a defeated enemy for us. And so now death, God uses death as a butler to usher us into heaven. And so it's not an a, um, enemy that has been undefeated. He, he's been defeated in our lives. If you don't know the Lord and you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord, death is a very real enemy to you. And that's why Jesus wants to save you today. Today is the day of salvation. So you need to turn to him. We also saw that Jesus, because he became human, is our high priest. So he had to suffer and die to pay our sin debt and be the propitiation, as we saw, the satisfying payment for the wrath that we deserved. But also he had to come to this earth and become a human so that he could be the high priest uh, to which we can relate, to whom we can relate, because he has gone through everything that we go through and more. So when we cry out to him and we, we give you know, our, our deepest you know, concerns over to him and we pour out our hearts and, and, and express to him what's going on in our lives, he is someone that can relate. He learned discipline, as we'll see later on in the book, through the things that he suffered. And so because of that, we can relate to him. He can relate to us in a unique way. He is our faithful high priest, a theme that he's going to continue expounding on in the coming chapters with great uh, detail. But this week in chapter three, he's going to deal with something a little bit different. And it's really the chapter we need to know that it divides in two parts. Verses one through six speak of Jesus being better than Moses. So he's better than the prophets, he's better than angels, but now he's going to focus on in verses one through six that Jesus is better than Moses. Now, you may think in the Jewish mind that Abraham would be the the preeminent person, and he was in many ways because God used him to begin the race. But when you talk to a, a Jewish person about what 
they are kind of known for and how they are great as a people, so many of them, both then and today, will tell you God gave the law of Moses to, uh, to Moses for the human race. And so that's kind of a heritage. That's something that they look to. So they highly, highly respected Moses. And so as good as Moses is and was, and there's nothing wrong with any of these things, he says Jesus is better than. But he doesn't even compare to the Lord Jesus. And in verses 7 through 19, after that, he's going to provide a very clear, distinct, potent warning regarding hardening our hearts through unbelief. So we have a lot to cover. Let's start in verse 1. He says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the holy or the heavenly calling. Again, these are believers. He calls them holy brethren. You don't call them believers holy in any, by any stretch. And they're also partakers of the heavenly calling. They've already partaken of that calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. You may not think of Jesus as an apostle. You, hear, you, know, you think of John the apostle, Paul the apostle, Peter the apostle. Actually, Timothy was called an apostle and Silas. But you don't think of Jesus being called an apostle, but he was. And very uniquely, of course, on a totally different level than the other apostles. The word apostle is the word that means one who is sent. One that carries a message, and, and it speaks of someone that's like an ambassador that brings a message from a, from a faraway country. And so all the apostles were sent out to preach the gospel. Jesus was sent out to accomplish redemption, to finish that work, and he did, because on the cross he said, it is finished. So he, he is an apostle and high priest, and that's what he's been speaking about, that he's our high priest of our confession Christ Jesus, verse 2, who was faithful to him, who? Jesus was faithful to him. Who's the him? The Father. Who was faithful to the Father, who appointed him, that is Jesus, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. We're told that Jesus was faithful and that Moses was faithful. We see there, right there in the verse. Moses was faithful in all his house. And so he's comparing the two. Notice he uses the repeating word faithful twice in the verse. He's, he's comparing them. He's saying Moses was faithful. The Lord Jesus was faithful. Again, he's not criticizing Moses. Moses should be respected, but he's no Jesus. He's not the son. He's not God in human flesh. He's not the God-man who came in human flesh as a man to become our high priest, to be the propitiation for our sins. He didn't even come close to any of those things. But notice the writer gets to Jesus' superiority there in verses 3 through 6. He says, For this one, that is Jesus, has been counted worthy, notice, more of more glory than Moses. How? Insomuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. What is this house about which the writer is speaking related to Moses? Where, how was Moses uh, faithful in all his house? Didn't he live in a tent? <laughs> I don't remember a, a physical address uh, for, for Moses. He lived in a tent. Some people think he's talking about the tabernacle. That's possible, but the tabernacle was a tent as well. It was a, t a temporary dwelling 
place. And I think it probably is more preferring more to the Jewish people and the responsibility that Moses had over God's people. He was a shepherd to them. He was a lot of things to them, but he was a shepherd to them. He had great training for 40 years, <laughs> getting his uh, BSD degree, his backside of the desert degree there, learning that he shouldn't be impressed with himself, that he under his own rule is a disaster like all of us, so that he could be usable and he could be a great vessel in the Lord's hands to properly shepherd God's people. But Moses was faithful. If you think of faithfulness in the Old Testament, you have to think of Moses. He wasn't perfect because there's a reason why he didn't make it into the promised land personally. But he was faithful. God doesn't call us to be perfect. He calls us to be faithful. He doesn't call us to be flawless. He calls us to have excellence in our ministries. And he does that through our lives by his grace and by his power. But notice the word more again in verse 3. It appears twice. This one who has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Now this is true with physical houses. I, I kind of, and I say that very, and there's people in the room that know me well enough to know that this is true, that I, I don't, I'm not very handy uh, and, and don't shout out amen, um, but I'm not very handy with my hands. I'm not a handyman. I'm an anti-handyman. And I, I oversaw, I was going to say I built a house in my backyard, but it really wasn't me that built it. Uh, it was someone else that built it, and I kind of oversaw them knowing what they were doing, which is funny because I didn't know what I was doing. So that's the blind leading the blind, really, but enough of my issues. So the, the, the house, though, turned out really well. And when it was all finished, it would have been really foolish of me to walk by that little house and to compliment the house for how amazing it was. Say, you know what? Your shutters look really good. You know, your, your kitchen cabinets are just beautiful. You don't do that. You compliment the contractor. You compliment the builder because they're the ones that oversaw the building of this house or the architect and so forth. So what's true of a physical house is true of a spiritual house. Moses oversaw God's spiritual house in the sense of Israel, but he can't take credit for the existence of Israel. He can't take credit for creating Israel and bringing those people together and being their creator and so forth. Jesus can, though. Jesus can get that credit. And so that's what the writer is saying. The, the, the builder of the house receives more glory than the house. Moses was faithful in many ways, but he wasn't faithful in the way that God was in Jesus creating that spiritual house. Now notice at the end of verse 4 he says, he who built all things is God. I believe this is a reference to, to, to Christ's deity. He's the subject, is he not? He who built all things is God. So it's, he's the creator, he's the one that built Moses' house that he was faithful in, and so he gets all the glory, and that is very uh, fitting. Verse 5, and Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And notice in verse 5, Moses was faithful in, notice the preposition in all his house, and notice as a servant. Okay, that's totally different than what what's Jesus is in the middle of in verse 6 when the writer uses a different preposition. He uses the word over so that Christ, the son, as a son, was over all his, notice, own house. 
Jesus possessed the house. Moses was a manager. Moses oversaw things, but it wasn't his house. It was Jesus' house. Moses was faithful in it. Jesus was faithful over it. So Jesus is better. And then we see this great uh, encouragement at the end of verse 6 where it says, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Because he says we are his house. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. He's building. He's building a house. He's building a spiritual house. And we are that house. We are the church. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith. He's going to get to that later in the book. So he's the one that oversees our spiritual development there. But we have to hold fast our confidence to the end. There is a perseverance of the saints. We need to persevere. We need to persevere all the way firm to the end. It's one thing to start something that's entirely different. Another another thing to finish something. And they were called to finish their their walk with the Lord. He's going to talk later in chapter 12 of finishing the race with the imagery of a marathon. To finish. A lot of people start races. (laughs) Not a lot of people finish races. And and the most important thing is that we finish. And they're in danger of going back as we've seen the context illustrate over and over again. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The writer here is quoting Psalm 95. And this part of Psalm 95 begins with referencing one of the major occurrences of Israel rebelling in the wilderness. And it's when they were at Meribah, and the word Meribah means rebellion. That's what the word means. And they're at Meribah and they wanted water. And they complained against the Lord. And what that complaint did is it revealed something. What did it reveal? It revealed their disbelief and their lack of trust in the Lord. I mean, think about it. If you're a parent and you have children, obviously when you have a track record of providing for them, it hurts you and can even anger you if they don't trust that you will take care of their needs when you have a track record of doing so. And that's what the Lord had with them. He had a great track record. Deliverance from Egypt. I mean, just that alone. Crossing the Red Sea. All these things. Providing for them manna and these different things so far. They needed to see that faithfulness and it was supposed to produce something in their lives. But they were being bad stewards of what God had demonstrated in their lives. And so here this psalm is focusing on that. But it's really also a more broad uh, commentary on their general condition in the wilderness for those 40 years and beginning and beginning you know when when they sent out the spies and so forth all the way through there was complaining at different times and so because of that he says at the end of verse 11 they shall not uh, enter my rest and I want to look at this morning the background of what uh, the, verses 7 through 11 are speaking to. I want us to see it for our own eyes. I want it, it kind of helps us to be able to see the, 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 the 
you know, kind of put meat, meat on the bone, so to speak, or, or the, the, the humanity that was in, involved in this whole account of them not believing the Lord and them hardening their heart and them rejecting the Lord, really, in their disbelief and their unbelief in their heart. So I want us to hold our place in Hebrews 2, or 3 rather, and turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to look at a lot of verses in 13 and 14. Now, the context is that God has told them to send out spies, one leader from each tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel to go out and spy on the land. And basically, God's intent behind that was to show them that what he said about this land, about how great it is, was true. And also provide them an opportunity to trust him. How many of us know in this room, God puts us in positions where we have to trust him. And by sending him into Israel or Canaan to see this land, it, gives, it creates an opportunity for them to trust him at his word. And God does that sometimes. They were also supposed to bring back some of the fruit and so forth. And so uh, he sends them out to do that. And then we see in verse 25, let's look at Numbers 13, 25, and let's pick up the account here says, and they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. That's how much God told them to go and do and to spy out the land. And he says in verse 26, now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the, of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then he, they told him and said, we, want, we went to the land where you send us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Let me pause there. So all of the leaders that came back to a man agreed with what God had said, said that it was what God said it was, okay? There wasn't anyone that said legitimately or even tried to float this complaint that this land wasn't what God promised it would be, okay? That we need to note that for the record. Nevertheless, verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong, the cities are fortified and are very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell on the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, you know how long it took to get from Egypt to the promised land? About two weeks. <laughs> That's about how long it took to, to, to get there. And it ended up taking a lot longer, but not because it needed to. It's because they didn't believe God. They had an unbelieving heart that doubted God's word and thus doubted God's character. And because of that, they were not just rejecting God's word. They were rejecting God himself. And God makes that very clear. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their Sight, chapter 14. So all the congregation lifted up their, voice, uh, their voices and cried. See, it affects people. So it affects others when we don't believe what the Lord says. And the people wept that night. 
And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, now notice the word whole, and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in, the, in this wilderness. Now, this gets really bad right here. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces, I bet they did, before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we, we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregations said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject? Notice me. So rejecting what God says, doubting what his word says, is not just in a theor theoretical exercise. We're rejecting God himself when we reject his word. And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, now Moses intercedes for them, and God hears his intercession. And, and so I want us to skip down to verse 20. This is how God responds to that intercept, inter intercession. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the, to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice. They certainly shall not see the land of which I spoke to their fathers, nor shall any of those who reject me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants will, shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you have been, who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who, who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall no, by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. So everyone 20 of year, years age and up at this time are never going to see the promised land. Only those that are age 19 and, and under. And then he says in verse 31, But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity. 
until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and, they sh and there they shall die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Now turn back to Hebrews 3. Now let's read verses 7 through 11 again. It'll make a lot more sense. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. Notice the word heart. And they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. These Jewish believers, as proud as they were of their heritage, <laughs> had to think back of what their heritage really was in part. They couldn't escape the part of their heritage with which they had a lot in common. And this is what they had in common. Their ancestors had seen God's glory. So had these believers. Their ancestors had been given promises from God. So had these believers. And so have we. Their ancestors had chosen to have evil hearts by rejecting God's word and his promises. Now these t believers were tempted to do the same. And thus the strong warning. Were they going to remain true to Christ by trusting in his promise to sustain them and to be faithful to them, even in persecution? Again, that's the thing that's buffeting against their confidence of whether or not they should remain following Christ, is this persecution. Things are getting tough. Things are getting strong. But what did Jesus say? In this life, you will face tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And he said when they bring you before, drag you before courts and before kings and you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit will give you what you ought to say. God already said through Jesus that he would be faithful to us when we go through persecution. They had, these, these believers were not new believers. He already is going to tell them, or he's already told them, and we'll see this in the coming chapters, that we should move on from the elementary truths of baptisms and resurrection and all these things. And he says, you should be teachers by now. These aren't new Christians. These are, these are Christians that have walked with Christ for a while. They've seen the glory of God. They've seen their lives changed. They've seen all these things, and they know all about Jesus' teaching that he would sustain them during persecution. And he's, his word meant something as far as God was concerned. When he said, I will withhold you and I will strengthen you, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, I will be there for you no matter what happens in your life, he meant it. And they had the choice whether that they were going to believe him or not believe him. They were going the direction of not believing him and denying him. And he, they need to know, and we need to know, that doing so is very dangerous and brings forth God's discipline uh, in our lives. So he says, don't be like your ancestors. You've been given the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, unlike your ancestors. You're a part of a new covenant, which he's going to talk to, talk about. Unlike 
your ancestors who had the old covenant. There's so much things about, so many things about uh, concerning Jesus being better that actually gives them such an advantage over their ancestors. And God had a standard for their ancestors that they weren't meeting. Very, very serious. And that's why he gives the warning in verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. This is the second major warning in the book, and there's five of them in the book. It's five major warnings. This is the second one. There's a lot at stake. He's going to get into more of that later on in the book. But there's a lot at stake, and this wilderness experience of, of their ancestors and them not believing what God said and not honoring what God said, even though they had this incredible track record with God and he had an incredible track record with them, it was great consequences for them to not believe his word. And so theirs was a physical death, but they're risking something so much greater. The bare minimum is that they wouldn't enter into God's rest. For the Jews, that was talking about the land of Canaan, entering into God's rest. And we'll get into that, Lord willing, more extensively next week. But for the Christian, God's rest means something entirely different, which again, we'll get into next week. Now, the Lord provides some practical help in verse 13. Look with me there. He says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but there, are, there have been two repeating words all through this passage. The word here, H-E-A-R, and the word today. Here is listed in verse 7, or verse, 7 verse 15 and 16. Actually, 16, it's the word heard, but it's the same idea. And then today, the word today is listed in verse 7, 13, and verse 15. And what God was saying to his people in the Old Testament and these believers and to us today is this. God is speaking on any given day. That's why he uses the word while it is called today. Because any, any day that we find ourselves in, it, obviously it could be called today. And he's saying on any given day, God is speaking to us to trust his word, to take him at his word, to have faith in him, to not harden our hearts in unbelief. And so he's always speaking, speaking through his word. He's speaking through his Holy Spirit. So there's not one day, let's say I end up on, you know, uh, February 22nd. There's never going to be like a, a day like February 22nd. Let's say I wake up and he's not speaking on that day. And I don't have an opportunity to trust him at his word. Every single day in which I find myself, God is speaking to me as a believer. And I have an opportunity to honor God with my faith and believe him at his word. And he's worthy of that faith. So I have a choice. But in verse 13, and you may not really have seen the connection here, but you will hopefully after I get into it a little bit, that verse 13 is speaking of yet another way that God speaks to us. It's talking about God speaking to us through other believers through exhortation. He's saying today, don't, 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 uh, you know, uh, resist his voice. God is speaking. He's speaking in many different ways. And to help us to not be deceived through, of, by sin and to drift and have this unbelieving heart that departs from the living God, there's one way that God has set things up so that I don't do that as a believer. And one of those ways, among many, is that I am supposed to be exhorted by other believers. That's hearing his voice today to believe him, to trust his word, and to honor him with our faith. What is exhortation? Exhortation is, it's, it's the Greek word means to stir up. 
And it literally is an encouragement that I can obey God's word. Sometimes we think exhortation is being busted. Someone has the spiritual gift of busting, where they go around the body of Christ citing penal code, First Timothy, whatever, or this book or whatever, and you're in violation, and you are in, there's an infraction going on, and you, you are busted, and that, that's not the spirit. We went through this when we went through the spiritual gifts. The gift of exhortation is someone that has the gift to do that, even though we're all supposed to do it, but no matter if we have the gift or not, when we do it, it's supposed to build up, and just busting people doesn't build up. And there's an encouragement aspect to it. It's not only you're not obeying God's word, it's you can obey God's word. And I'm here to help you obey God's word. And all of heaven's resources are available to you to obey God's word. It's an encouragement. When someone, quote unquote, exhorts you, if you don't walk away encouraged that you can obey God's word, you weren't exhorted by, exhorted by the Holy Spirit. And they may have that gift, or they may have obeyed the Lord in trying to exhort you, but it's not having its full effect unless you're encouraged. And so that's important for us to see. What's important for us to know, though, from the verse, is that we have to be able to receive exhortation and we have to be willing to give it. And we have to be around believers enough to be able to participate in those transactions. Because it says daily, doesn't it? Did you see that in the verse? Daily. So that means that we have to be around believers enough to have that happen. So I have to be willing to be exhorted. It's easy to forget that people pay a price to tell us things that are difficult. It happens to me all the time as a pastor. It's hard, some, it's hard every single time I tell someone something they need to hear. And there's this deceitfulness of sin because sin deceives us in so many ways. We don't even have time to get into all the ways that sin deceives but because of the power of its deception, we need outside people to have the freedom to speak into our lives. Can you be exhorted? Can someone say something that's, that's difficult for you to hear about yourself in a spirit-directed way? I hope so. And can you give it in a spirit-directed way that's loving? Are you willing to or do you care more about what they think about you than to care about what their spiritual growth looks like? God's called us to do both, and he's called us to do it frequently. I, as I said before, and it's, it's been said many times by others, this is the, one of the most disobeyed verses in the New Testament. We're not willing to be exhorted, and we're not willing to exhort, and we're not willing to be around people enough to have the opportunity for that. And so it's a great, great protection mechanism that God has placed within the body of Christ to protect us from deception. I have senior pastors and other godly mem- godly men in my life that have the freedom to ask very direct questions and be able to say, hey, <laughs> come on, knucklehead, I, wanna, I don't want to give you a Zerbert or whatever it's called, but what's going on here? And they have the freedom to do that. It would, it's wise for us to do that because we all have blinders. We all don't see things. And we should be the most inviting person that the body of Christ has ever seen related to being exhorted. We should wholeheartedly not just receive it, but welcome it and ask for it to be corrected. And if my heart is a heart that is resisting correction and resisting people uh, properly exhorting us, that's a warning sign for us that we are on the road to being hardened and and possibly rejecting uh, God's word or him or whatever it is on on a bad path towards uh, not being where God wants us to be. We have to be very welcoming and be, be willing to be exhorted on anything that, the, that 
that people bring before us. It may not even, in our own times of prayer subsequent to that time, it may, we may see that they, maybe they weren't correct. But we have to appreciate they took the chance to say something in an appropriate way. So all of us need it. It's very important. Verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if, there's a second time if has appeared, if we hold the, the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, there's our word again, today, if you will hear, there's our another word again, repeating word, his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And I, th- I think the, the idea here is the majority doesn't determine what truth is. You know, in, in Jerusalem and in other places, at the very beginning, there was a lot of pe- Jews becoming Christians. But over time, of course, as those Christians grew, let's say that these Jewish believers were not around larger groups of, of, of Jewish believers and they're around non-Jewish, uh, I mean, they're around Jewish uh, people that, that weren't Christians. And it can kind of seem that they're getting outnumbered and, the, and, you know, kind of the majority rules in terms of what's truth and what's right and, and so forth. The whole point of this is it was everybody that was wrong. Numbers don't determine what's right and wrong. The whole world could be wrong, <laughs> but God and his word are right. And he says, now with whom was he angry 40 years? It was all of them. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, that is the promised land, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. When they reached the promised land, under Joshua. Joshua was nearly 100 years old. Caleb was, was 85 years old. They were old men. All those younger children and, and the, the teenagers and the children that made it there, they had an entirely different testimony than the ones that never made it there because they were able, able to enter the promised land and be able to see the fulfillment of what God had said and they had made it through uh, seeing that God was faithful to his word. And so with our lives, it's not Israel, or or Egypt rather, that we're potentially going back to. It's the world. And and just like the the Jews could could have this insanity going on where they can actually think it'd be better to go back to Egypt as slaves, so too we can go back into the, the world as well. And we can start doing things, accepting things, uh, participating in things. And, and we never would have dreamed of doing those things, maybe, you know, months ago, years ago, as, as a believer. But we've drifted to the point where now we're, we've made compromise after compromise after compromise, and now disobedience to him is just a casual thing that doesn't mean anything. And the whole picture of Egypt in the scriptures for the Christian is the picture of going back to the world and going back into the bondage of sin. There's nothing good back there. There's no redeeming quality about what the world has to offer whatsoever. And God wants to burn that reality into our hearts forever. Maybe you're here and you've been drifting. Maybe you're here and you, maybe outwardly, no one would know that, but in your heart you've been drifting and you're not believing God's word and you're not trusting him. Now, this isn't talking about the moments of weakness when we're doubting and so forth. He's very patient and gracious. This is a deliberate, willful thing where you know what's right, you know what's, what, what, what you should do, and you are willfully saying no. I choose to not act on what God said I should do. 
and I, and I don't believe what he says is right and appropriate for me. That is what, that's the danger sign. That's the roadblock he's putting up before you that you're blasting through, that he's wanting to keep you from. Sin is very deceptive. When you go through and I go through sin and we don't repent, it hardens our heart. And over time, that becomes calloused. And before you know it, we're doing things we never thought we'd ever do again. And then we're unrecognizable. And then, then we're, we're completely dis, disconnected from, from him in, in many ways. And God doesn't want that. He wants this lesson to be burned into us so we stay right where we're supposed to be all the days of our pilgrimage. And he'll be faithful to give us all the grace for that. Our decisions lead somewhere. It affects other people. People are watching our faithfulness and it affects them. We're supposed to be good examples for those that are watching our lives. And God wants us to finish well, not just start well, to finish well. He's trying to prevent the disaster that's coming, the sure disaster that's coming if we don't heed his warning. Our hearts need to be true to him. He's worthy of all of that based on what he's already done for us. Will we hear his warning? Will we hear his voice while it's called today? Only we know the answer to that question. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the sobriety that you produce in our hearts through your word. I pray that you'd encourage anyone that needs encouraging that they can follow you, that you can provide all that they need to do that successfully and victoriously. Lord, your word says that we're more than conquerors. We'd be satisfied with just being conquerors, but you tell us we're more than conquerors. And if you were for us, who could be against us? And that all your promises are yea and amen to us. And we're your sons and daughters. Thank you for that. Help us to walk true before you. Encourage those that are discouraged. Help them to see that you're greater than all of their struggles and that you're so gracious with them. Thank you, Lord, that you produce a humility in us to, to not point fingers at others, but to have a healthy fear of our own walk before you, Lord. But help us to encourage others that are struggling. We want to be an extension of you. Help us to exhort one another daily. Help us to do that regularly and be willing to receive and give that needed exhortation. And just thank you for meeting us where we're at. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.